0: Hello friends and welcome to Into the Word A radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter Your word is a lamp unto my feet
1: If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 2 Timothy chapter 3. The chapter division seems a bit unnatural here. Chapter 3 actually begins with the word, but, in the ESV translation, which I think clearly implies that we're jumping into something mid-argument. Verse 1 says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. To get up to speed here then, obviously, we're going to need to look back to the end of chapter 2. In the last few verses there, Paul was talking to Timothy about the need to correct opponents with gentleness. He said, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Closed quote. That's 2 Timothy 2:25 to 26. Now, that's a fairly optimistic take on things. Correct people gently, and who knows? God may grant repentance, and they may turn around and come back to the light. But understand this, Timothy, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. I think that's the transition from two to three. So putting it all together, it seems like Paul is saying that Timothy needs to be meek, kind, and gentle, but not naive, He needs to understand that these are troubled times. Some people are going to repent, but many are going to go from bad to worse. There are going to be a lot of great stories, sure, but also the last days are going to be, generally speaking, times of difficulty. Obviously, then we need to understand what Paul means by the last days days. That kind of frames our understanding of everything he's saying here. He is saying this to Timothy, so I think it's fair to assume that the last days have begun in Timothy's day. It wouldn't have done Timothy any good to be told, you know, hang in there, buddy, be nice to people, but also don't be naive because 2,000 years after you're dead, things are going to get really tough out there. Uh, That would be incoherent and unhelpful. So the last days must be days that Timothy is experiencing presently at the time when Paul wrote this letter. But how long do they last? That's really the issue. Some have understood this to refer to the several years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Certainly that was a momentous occasion. Uh, Probably we are correct in uh, referring to that time, A.D. 70, as the official end of the Jewish age. In 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul recommends temporarily deferring marriage in view of the present distress, and when in 1 Corinthians 10, he refers to the Corinthians as those on whom the end of the ages has come, he may well have been referring to the very turbulent transition from the Jewish age to the age of the Gentiles or the age of the church. That is possible, maybe even likely, but is that what Paul means here by the last days? I don't think so. Rather, it appears that in the New Testament, the expression, the last days, refers to the entire time period after the ascension of Christ and before his triumphant return. Because all the main events associated with our redemption have been accomplished, nothing more remains to be done apart from the announcement of Christ's victory and the invitation for everyone to respond appropriately. And therefore, The last hour could begin at any moment, making this, theologically speaking, the last days of human history. John Calvin is helpful here in terms of understanding how the apostles tended to use this kind of language. Commenting on 1 John 2.18, Calvin says, The apostle, according to the common mode adopted in the scripture, declares to the faithful that nothing more now remained but that Christ should appear for the redemption of the world but as he fixes no time he did not allure the men of that age by a vain hope nor did he intend to cut short in future the course of the church and the many successions of years during which the church has hitherto remained in the world and doubtless if the eternity of god's kingdom be born in mind so long a time will appear to us as a moment we must understand the design of the apostle that he calls that the last time during which all things shall be so completed that nothing will remain except the last revelation of Christ, Close quote. So according to Calvin, it is the last time or the end times, if you prefer, because there's nothing left to be done in terms of our redemption apart from the victorious return of Christ. That seems to be the perspective of most evangelical commentators on our passage here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. John Stott, for example, says, What follows in 2 Timothy 3, therefore, is a description of the present, not the future. Paul depicts the whole period, elapsing between the first and second comings of Christ. Quote. So Timothy is in the last days, and so are we. During this time, the apostle says that we would be wise to anticipate difficulties. We hear why that is now, beginning in verse 2. So again, this is what people will be like now and increasingly throughout the period of time known as the last days. George Knight III says here, Paul is describing what will be true from the apostolic age on, not just what is true for Timothy's time, closed quote. So this is the spirit of the age. You might even say this is the spirit of Antichrist. The New Testament speaks of a spirit of Antichrist that is active all throughout the last days, climaxing in a personal ultimate Antichrist just prior to the return of Jesus. The Apostle John, for example, says, As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Closed quote. That's 1 John 2.18. The Apostle Paul speaks about a man of lawlessness that has to come just before the absolute end, But then he says as well that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That's 2 Thessalonians 2.7. So there's a spirit, an unseen force at work all throughout the last days, attempting to seduce and influence the hearts of men and women. And it manifests in particular ways. It makes people, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, rebellious, ungrateful, unholy, Heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Everyone who has ever read that list has probably thought to themselves, I must be living in the last days. Because that does seem to describe, with increasing accuracy, the people who are living in this world. And of course, as we heard above from Calvin and Stott and others, that's true. We we are living in the last days. So we do expect to encounter these sorts of people with increasing frequency. Let's talk for a few minutes about a few of those listed characteristics. The first two, lovers of self and lovers of money, can probably be lumped together. Interestingly, the list begins and ends with terms expressing a misdirection of love. The Tyndale New Testament commentary has a really fascinating comment here. It says, self-centeredness and material advantages, when they become the chief objects of affection, destroy all moral values, closed quote. When you order your loves incorrectly, your character begins to fall apart. I think that's a very helpful insight In the middle of this list, we see how hard and nasty such people can become. Paul says that such people are heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal. The Greek word translated there as unappeasable is interesting. The dictionary defines it as meaning unwilling to make a treaty, hence implacable, irreconcilable. When people dig in their heels, double down, and shut down any attempt at reconciliation and mutual understanding, and they just persist in their slanderous, immoderate, and brutal attacks, you're dealing with somebody under the influence of the spirit of the age. Avoid them. Now, that's interesting counsel. Uh, We wonder how far we're supposed to take that. In the last chapter, Paul told Timothy to correct his opponents with gentleness. That was verse 25. So obviously when he says here, avoid them, it means after attempting to correct them with gentleness, right? Give that a try, but then if they don't respond to that, then avoid them. I think that's good counsel. You need to avoid them and sometimes you need to help your people avoid them because certain folks aren't wise enough to do that for themselves. Paul talks about that now beginning in verse 6. He says, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Many modern Bible readers, of course, are offended by verse 6. Probably many ancient Bible readers were offended by it as well, if that's helpful. (laughs) Presumably, Paul is thinking first and foremost about the false teachers that he was speaking about earlier. They are filled with the spirit of the age and they're attempting to spread their poison and so they creep into households trying to get a hearing and no one is more receptive to their message than weak women who are burdened with sin and led astray by various passions. Now, that does sound a bit prejudicial. And yet there are numerous studies indicating that women experience far more negative emotion than men, on average. Women feel more guilt and shame than men. And what Paul seems to be saying is that a woman weighed down with guilt over past sinful indulgences is going to be spiritually and psychologically vulnerable to this particular type of deception. And whether that's politically correct or not, it is a rather astute observation on human nature. A woman in that situation may be very open to a strong, confident, brash, even brutal leader who offers rescue, certainty, and distraction. Be aware of that, Timothy. Have an eye out for that possibility, young pastor. You may need to step in from time to time to sever a tie that is causing spiritual and psychological harm. Countering the influence of false teachers has been part of the job for spiritual leaders ever since the beginning of our story, Paul says, and he begins to illustrate that now with a reference to the Exodus. We see that in verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Janus and Jambres, of course, were the names of the magicians in Pharaoh's court who opposed Moses and Aaron in the Exodus story. Their names are not in the Bible, but were preserved in other extra-biblical sources that Paul obviously knows of and cites here. Uh, The fact that he cites them doesn't mean that he endorses those works in whole or in part. He's simply illustrating a point by reference to a story that people were very familiar with at the time. The point is that these men were only successful up to a point. They didn't get very far. And you'll recall that uh, in the Exodus story. They had to tap out at the third plague. They were able to mimic the first plague, turning water into blood. And they were able to mimic the second plague, causing the frogs to come up out of the Nile. But when they tried to mimic the third plague, they couldn't do it. Exodus 8, 18-19 says... The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, closed quote. And that's the point that Paul is making here. One of the reasons that you don't have to obsess over false teachers is that eventually they tend to out themselves. They tend to end up exposed and embarrassed without you having to do anything. So you try to correct, uh, you try to point out problems when necessary, you work to wean your own people off their influence, but you don't need to become totally distracted by them because eventually they run out of tricks, they run out of material, and they reveal themselves as charlatans. False prophets are operating on mere talent and technique, and as such, they can mimic low-hanging spiritual fruit, but they can't go deep can't go far and they tend not to produce real lasting life change. So again, eventually the whole house of cards collapses and they end up exposing their folly to all. That's what happened to Pharaoh's magicians and that's generally what happens to all false spiritual leaders over time. Verse 10, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. So in contrast to the explosive, but ultimately false leadership of the false prophets and teachers, you, Timothy, are walking in the path of endurance and persistence. Now, this is a hard road, but it is the right road. And if you walk it long enough through whatever dangers and difficulties it may bring, it will lead you in the way of life and salvation. God helps people on this path. He gives them grace. He gives them supply. He gives them rescue. That's the Christian way. There there is no crown without a cross. There's no glory without suffering. It is the one who endures to the end who is saved. After going through all of those places uh, that he mentions here—Antioch, Iconium, Lystra—Paul said in Acts fourteen twenty-two, "Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God." Well, that's essentially what he's saying here as well. Look at verse twelve: "Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived." So if you want to follow Jesus in this world, which is hostile to its creator and which prefers darkness to light, you will experience persecution. Jesus said that all the time. In Matthew ten twenty four to 25, he said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Close quote. In John 15, 18-19, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So until Jesus returns and until he sends out his angels to remove all sin and all causes of sin so that the righteous can shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father forever, until that happens... The dark is going to try and eat the light. The sons of the evil one are going to try and eat the sons of God. And everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Book it. Write it down. It's going to happen. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, Paul says. Now, who are these people? Obviously, they're the opposite in, in some sense of those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. There are two types of these people. There are, first of all, the evil people. Uh, These are people who aren't Christians and don't want to be Christians. And then there are the imposters. Those are people who present themselves as Christians, but who are not. Both of these types of people are going to be gunning for you while they themselves go from bad to worse. Guthrie says here, a progressive worsening of evil influences is prophesied, quote. Listen, apart from Christ, people are not getting better. On the contrary, they're getting worse. They themselves are deceived by the devil, and through their influence, other people are lured away into the darkness as well. Verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, Knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It is remarkable how often real faith in the Bible is equated with persevering faith. Paul says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. That's real faith. Real faith is about walking straight ahead in the time-tested path of the gospel. Real faith is the faith that eats the slings and the arrows and keeps on putting one foot in front of the other. It doesn't turn to the right or to the left. It doesn't turn back. It just continues on. That's real faith. Timothy was set on this path by people he can trust. We assume Paul is referring there to his mother, his grandmother, and also to himself. Look at these people, Timothy. You know them. You, you know their lives. You know their faith. You know that they're the real deal. You understand that you were given the good stuff. So continue on in it. And you know that it came from the Bible. You were steeped in the Bible as a young lad, Timothy. And by that you were made wise unto salvation. That's an interesting phrase. The Bible, of course, doesn't convert us. Rather, the Bible positions us for the salvation that can only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit acting on us. But the Holy Spirit doesn't do that apart from the Word of God. Now, of course, it goes without saying, or at least it ought to go without saying, that Paul is talking about the Old Testament here when he refers to the sacred writings. The New Testament of course, hadn't been fully written yet and and was a long way from being organized, compiled, and recognized as a complete canon. Paul's talking about the Old Testament here. The Old Testament told Timothy what he needed to know to respond appropriately to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament told Timothy that there was a God to whom he was accountable. It told him that human beings were creatures of enormous dignity, but it also talked about a fall, and how we are not now what we were originally created to be. The Old Testament talked about promise as well, how God intended to come at some point in the future to rescue us, redeem us, restore us, and return us to our former dignity and glory. talked about how God would have to do for us what we could no longer do for ourselves, and how he would have to pay for what we have done so that our debts could be paid and we could be forgiven. The Old Testament talked about all of that and Timothy had been steeped in all of that and therefore Timothy was well positioned to walk through the narrow gate and to receive the salvation of God through the person and work of Christ, praise the Lord. Reflecting on that provides an occasion for Paul to remind Timothy of the power and utility of the scriptures. He says in verses 16 to 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Close quote. That brings us to the end of 2 Timothy chapter 3. This remarkable little passage tells us two very important things about the Holy Scriptures. It tells us, first of all, where they come from, and then, second of all, what they are for. In terms of where the Bible comes from, we're told that all scripture is breathed out by God. That is to say, it is inspired. God is the ultimate author of the Bible. The Apostle Peter said something very similar in 2 Peter 1.21. He said, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Close quote. The Greek word translated there is carried along is the same word used in the story of Paul's shipwreck in Acts 27, 17. Uh, You may recall that story. The sailors were doing everything possible to lighten the ship and to get some steerage, but it was impossible. The wind was too strong, and thus they were driven along, Acts 27, 17. Same word. The idea, then, is that God breathes out the scriptures through the prophet, but in a way that God is ultimately in charge. We get plenty of human personality in the Bible. Paul doesn't sound exactly like Peter, and John doesn't sound exactly like Luke. But the driving personality of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. The impulses are his, and thus they are driven along. The Bible comes from God. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. Now, this passage also tells us what the Bible is for. Paul says that the Bible is profitable or useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We notice the balance there of positive and negative. The Bible builds up through positive instruction, but it also tears down through reproof and correction. It trains the believer in righteousness and it equips the believer for Christian service. It makes us mature and it makes us powerful in terms of our ministry. Now, there's some debate as to whether Paul is speaking generally about all Christians here or specifically about Timothy and other pastors and elders like him. I think it's a situation of both and. Paul is writing to Timothy, he's not writing to all people generally or all Christians in Rome. This letter is addressed to one particular Christian, and that one particular Christian happens to be a pastor. And so of course this statement is most obviously and most immediately intended for him. And so yes, yes, pastors and elders, those who are who are akin to Timothy, like Timothy in that sense, please do understand that the whole Bible is to be your ministerial source book. Reading it and studying it will form and reform your soul and it will edify, correct and encourage your people. It is Your sword and your spear, it is your hammer and your saw. The books of the Bible are your tools in trade. But of course, the same is true for parents and grandparents and all disciples of Jesus in a more general sense. The Bible is your source book, your strength, and your sword as well. So study it, be bent upon it, become an expert in cutting it straight and applying it fair. Do this for yourself and do this for your hearers
0: and you and they will reap a sure reward. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.